wisdom expects of its disciples. By Manly P. Hall. An adult brain audiobook production, read by Graham Dunlop. A Warning to Esotericists, Part 1. Great as is the number of present-day religious movements, both heterodox and orthodox, few of them inspire their followers to serve their fellow men along practical and intelligent lines. One by one, the various cults are being involved in materialism and commercialism, among which by necessity they have been established. This is not to be wondered at, for it is difficult to separate our religion from our daily lives. We may call it by many different names, but it still reflects the thoughts and moral character of those who form its organization. Modern attitudes on life are not healthy, and organizations built up by unhealthy people cannot be normal. Commercialism has attacked every plane of society. It has entered into all the walks of life. Our race is money-mad. It is insane on the subject of personal gain. It will give nothing to serve others, but will give everything to gain the knowledge which will make it possible for the mediocre to become a commercial power overnight. The struggle, inseparable from the ethics of competition, is largely responsible for this condition. Graft has appeared in almost every walk of life. Nearly every existing institution is overrun by some mild form of moral dishonesty. And if every walk of life is commercialized and perverted, we cannot expect religion to escape. History records no graft or prostitution equal to the grafts that today masquerade under the names of psychology and new thought. The art of duping the public has evolved from the disreputable buffoonery of the Middle Ages to the polished Pharisaism of the 20th century. As seagulls follow a ship, so this curse has followed in the wake of that great wave of selfishness and moral perversion which is the product of our commercial age. When correctly understood and properly used for the service of humanity, psychology, metaphysics, and new thought are highly commendable, and their truths are sorely needed by ignorant humanity today. But what has happened? These names have been used to conceal all forms of mental, moral, spiritual, and physical infamy until everything we know of them today is a prostitution and commercialization of the truths for which they once stood. Their success is based upon the assumption that the people with whom they work are too ignorant to realize the injury that is being done. We are not attacking the principles underlying these cults and philosophies, nor the true thing for which the names stand. Neither are we attacking those sincere people who seek to assist others to build and unfold their characters. We are attacking perversion of truth and those persons who, shielding their crimes under the cloak of wisdom, deliberately and consciously mislead the public for the aggrandizement of self. In the 14th chapter of St. John, 30th verse, Jesus states, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh, and hath nothing in me. The ancient wisdom is not of this world. It belongs to an entirely different sphere. 
It is not interested in improving the material condition of the individual from the standpoint of placing him in an executive positions or surrounding him with opulence. The ancient wisdom seeks to build the character of man, knowing that if he can be made right with himself, far more is accomplished than when he is made a ruler over many men. Truth expresses the synthesis of the divine wisdom. Truth is the eternal reality of things. Psychology and metaphysics as taught today are not true, and the things taught under the guise of truth are no better than those who disseminate them. An intellectual fact is not necessarily a truth. The misapplication of it is a falsehood. If an individual wishes to take a course in business efficiency at the expense of others, if he wishes to attend a night school class in order to learn how to become a moral pickpocket, he is privileged to do so as long as he is willing to accept the karmic consequences. You will remember that when Lucifer decided to rebel against God, the deity allowed him to do so. It is demoralizing to a community for people to believe that God either gives or authorizes classes in slick salesmanship, shrewd bargaining, and mortgage foreclosing, or that he advocates sitting in the silence to get rid of an undesired marriage partner. Modern psychology has made God appear to be as dishonest as the persons who promulgate these doctrines. All this has a destructive effect on the life and health of the race. Let us consider a few points toward which the ancient wisdom was adamant and modern religion is lax. We can pick them from things going on all around us, all the time, without going into abstractions. Number one, in all things involving the acquirement of knowledge, the ancient wisdom says, first, purify your own life. This means literally what it says. Until selfishness is removed from the soul of a student, he can never hope to gain any knowledge that will serve him for any purpose more lofty than as a mental stimulant. The modern psychological cults overlook this entirely, failing to emphasize any virtue essential for the human nature outside of endless desires for things not normally attainable. Once men died for truth, but now truth dies at the hands of men. 2. The apostles who died for their faith, the Christians who sang in the arena while the lions were turned loose upon them or who hung coated with tar as living torches in Nero's gardens. These furnished vivid demonstrations of the sincerity, humility, honesty, and devotion of the early followers of Christ. The Master himself was led up into the mountain by the demons and tempted by a vision of the city stretched out in the plains below. The ancient initiates were tempted by the things of this world. Buddha, standing beside the crib in which lay his infant son, chose between all the things which life held dear and the wandering life of an ascetic. But the great need of humanity filled his soul, and he sacrificed all to his great unselfish love. Again and again students are tempted by the voice of the world, and only if they are strong will they gain that wisdom which they seek. The true occultist wants nothing but wisdom. When Solomon raised his hands to God, Jehovah spoke from the heavens, asking him what he would have. And he answered, God, give me the gift of wisdom. Jehovah asked him if there were no other things he desired, 
But Solomon answered, No, only wisdom. And God told Solomon that because he had asked only for wisdom, that all the other things should be added unto him, and that from this day to the end of the world, there would never be another king so rich, so great, or so blessed. These are the facts well worthy of consideration in the light of modern psychology. As we listen to the words of the modern exponents of things divine, we see them making converts by offering to the ignorant the very things by which the ancient masters were tempted by the demons of the air. Again and again the new cult leader promises his disciples the cities of the plains. His credulous followers fall over each other to study at his feet and learn how, through magnetic personalities or mental gymnastics, they can acquire the earthly possessions which he promises them. The crime does not lie in desiring the things of this world, for to a certain degree they are both necessary and good. Man would not be placed in his present environment unless he were expected to study and benefit by his experiences. The great crime lies in claiming these perverted doctrines to be spiritually inspired and representing God's chief desire to be making people financially independent. 3. Compare the initiates of days gone by, fighting a people who could not understand, struggling with idolatry and superstition, and seeking to mold out of these things a truer and nobler concept of life. Wandering day after day over the blistering sands like Moses in the wilderness. Compare those masterminds with the self-termed masterminds of today, and then ask yourself if you should follow them. The human race has never desired that which was best for it, but like a child it reaches out its hands and cries for the moon. Today the race does not know what it is good for it, and individuals, instead of seeking to unfold their constitutions symmetrically, have gone mad over a system of philosophical hocus-pocus which promises something for nothing and exchanges divine wisdom for a moderate fee. 4. Without labor, there is no inspiration, and none can do our work for us but ourselves. The ancient wisdom demanded many years of purification and preparation before the adepts were willing to instruct in even the simplest things. Many modern occultists are glibly teaching Pythagorean mathematics and numerology. And if you come every afternoon for a week, you will be greatly amazed how little you will discover. They wonder why it is that many of the keys of the Pythagorean mysteries have been lost to the world. The answer is simple. Pythagoras never instructed his disciples in any of his philosophical concepts until after they had passed through five years of the strictest discipline, among other things, one provision being that during the entire time they were not to speak a word, in order that afterwards they might know how to hold their tongues. We would have much less trouble if our psychologists refrained from speaking for the first five years, for most of them are preaching with no more foundation for their eloquence than two weeks study with someone no better informed than themselves. 5. There is another class of people who go about discussing the infinite with ease and fluency, who as yet have never acquainted themselves with the finite. The most interesting rule of the ancient wisdom is that none of its initiates discuss the absolute. They explain the hypothesis of first cause, 
but state finally that no human being, themselves included, know sufficient concerning it to give it an intelligent opinion or definition. And no wise man presumes to discuss that about which he knows nothing. When Buddha was asked concerning the Absolute, he declined to discuss the subject. He was also silent concerning the gods, feeling that they were beyond the range of human intelligence. As a result, it has been said that he was an atheist, or at least a pantheist, when in reality it was his respect and reverence for the deity that led him, in his sublime wisdom, to refrain from giving utterance to words whose very inadequacy would but defile. When the disciples of Socrates questioned him concerning the Absolute, he also refused to discuss it, stating that it was beyond his wisdom and that it played no practical part in everyday life. But again and again, fools dash in where angels fear to tread. While the greatest minds ever evolved by the human race dare not to speak for fear they will desecrate that which is too sacred for words, some person, with neither record of accomplishment nor prospect of anything better, seeks to impress the uninformed by glibly discussing things he knows nothing about. 6. There is only one series of true occult exercises in the world, namely esoteric exercises. Every nation has adopted these exercises with certain modifications to meet the needs of race, color, and organic qualities. The Christians took theirs from the Jews, the Jews from the Egyptians, the Egyptians from the Brahmins, and so on ad infinitum. When Buddha gave his faith to India, he merely gave a doctrine for the consideration of the common people. For, being a Brahmin himself, he followed the Brahmin culture of esoteric exercises. The so-called occult exercises are those formulas given by word of mouth by the initiates to their disciples under the pledge of absolute secrecy, in order that these disciples may use the exercises in spiritualizing, etherizing, and purifying their bodies. One of the most reprehensible crimes perpetrated today is the teaching by present-day occultists of crazy, homicidal, and suicidal practices under the guise of esoteric instructions. If followed persistently, these practices will result in the death of those who attempt to follow them. The redeeming feature is that the average Western mind is incapable of concentrating long enough, or consistently enough, upon anything to be seriously harmed. All the esoteric instructions in the hands of unqualified people today are the result of treason and broken vows among the lower degrees of initiates. In order to receive them from such sources, the recipient must become a party to the crime. Not only this, but when the student permits himself to listen to instructions gained falsely, he nullifies any good which he might otherwise gain. Having obtained the instructions without the necessary preparation and apprenticeship ordered by the great school, he cannot receive the spiritual insight that he desires. It breaks the hearts of the masters to see people who know better dabbling with the so-called esoteric exercises, gathering in circles to go into the silence, rolling their eyes at the top of their heads and sitting in the darkened rooms hoping to see something. It is not the mere fact that the student does these things which hurts the teachers. It is the fact that the disciples have grown so little in discrimination that it is possible for them to become parties to such absurdities. 
We do not mean that they will not see things, hear voices, and gain certain mediumistic powers. We mean that they will be less useful after they have secured these powers than before, for they will have to unlearn again all those things and habits which they had learned unwisely. 7. The masters are ever waiting to entrust their disciples and students who show desire to receive with that wisdom which the world so sadly needs. If the student desires to go forth and teach, he will be given a work to do. That is, if he will honestly, sincerely, and intelligently prepare himself for his labors. The reason why so many false doctrines are being taught is that people who have an idea do not ask themselves, Is this theory which I have true? Am I living the sort of life that would permit me to receive real truth into my soul? Am I unselfish, open, obedient, humble, and consecrated? Have I developed my mind so that it can think? Have I opened my heart so that it can feel? If I have not, then the thing which I have received is distorted by the glass through which it shines, and all I can give the world is a distorted image, a dishonest representation of truth. Have I actually consecrated my life and all that I am, unselfishly and without reservation? Or am I only an intellectual dabbler? Am I a success or a failure in life? Am I surrounded by friends or by enemies of my own making? Am I respected by my community? Do I allow other people to live their own lives? Or am I trying to force my beliefs upon all with whom I come in contact? Have I or have I not, consciously and beyond all possibility of mental exaggeration, received personal instruction from the inner schools. I and I alone know that. The rest of the world, except the enlightened few, must believe what I say. If I have not received such instructions, am I big enough to admit it and say, with respect to my doctrines, that they are only my own opinions? Or am I palming off these opinions as cosmic truths upon no firmer ground than the fact that I believe them? All these questions the student must ask himself, for he alone can answer them, but he is capable of injuring many if he is not honest in his statements concerning these fundamental truths. Every teacher and student would thus interrogate himself. Endless sorrow could be avoided, for he would realize that, as an evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit, neither can a sin-filled body nor a perverted mind be the channel for the transmission of wisdom. Like begets like. The eccentric individual thinks eccentric thoughts, while the sane mind views all things sanely. 8. Psychologists today teach how one person may influence another to do things otherwise foreign to his nature. Let each student of the mystery school be careful, therefore, when he studies with psychologists that the psychologist does not turn the tables on him. If he teaches you how to gain some advantage over another and twist that individual to your own ends, take care that he does not discover your gullibility and capitalize on you by way of demonstrating the application of his own philosophy. These things work both ways, and if you expect to psychologize others, you must expect to be psychologized in turn. For it is a poor rule that does not work both ways. It is, however, a good rule which most people are willing to have turned around and applied to them. 
psychology has psychologized the public and, like the children of Hamlin Town who followed the Pied Piper, immature minds have followed false teachings until they have disappeared into the unknown. 9. Among the so-called students of truth, we see the fruitage of the delusions from which the world suffers. Sickly, nervous, no longer capable of solving their own problems. They sit around, treating each other, waiting like spiritual macabres for something to turn up. These people were once useful, intelligent members of their community. But they are now so involved in mental absurdities that they are both useless to themselves and to society in general. Most of all, they are like gaunt scarecrows who frighten others from the path of wisdom. 10. The ancient wisdom is sane. It seeks to solve the problems with which we are surrounded today. It is spiritual and reasonable in the highest sense of the word. It is seeking to develop better men and women to meet the problems of future generations. It is based upon the law of cause and effect. It has no patented formula, no shortcuts, but builds firmly and solidly the characters of those who unite themselves with its work. It is not led by Montebank teachers, but by great minds that have dedicated themselves since the beginning of the world to the promulgation of the sacred truths. It speaks with the experience of eternity, for it has led a thousand nations into being and buried as many when they turned from its course. The nations of antiquity which still exist are the ones which have preserved its laws, while those that have fallen are the ones that have ignored its commandments. There is no greater honor than to be called to the service of this eternal wisdom, which was before the beginning and which will ultimately become the visible exoteric ruling body of the planet. Through the doors of its temple man passes from the temporal to the eternal, from ignorance to wisdom. It is strong and great, this ancient wisdom. It is the earth moistened with the waters of life in which are planted the seeds of doctrines, faiths, and religions. All these are dependent upon it for nourishment and growth. They blossom forth and are glorified, but the dark and mysterious soil in which they all grow is the ancient wisdom. From it they come, to it they will again return. They are temporal, it is eternal. The Coming of the Mystery Schools Part 2 Since earliest times, the belief in a superior and supreme being manifesting in totality what man manifests only in part has been the common property of human creatures. The mindless man struggling up through the muck and mire of the Paleozoic fens beat his hairy chest with long misshapen arms and raised his cry to an unknown god. Even the hairy anthropoids of today have certain rudiments of religious worship. Soulless but aware, they turn their half-formed faces to the sky and clasp their hands as though in prayer. No one knows whence came the spirit of worship, the great desire to express thankfulness for the mere privilege of existing. But it is as old as history. The first writings are of the gods. Probably the first buildings were temples. For we are realizing more day by day that every structure in nature is a sanctuary built without the voice of workmen or the sound of hammers. It is not only a sanctuary, but also an altar. It is not only the altar, but also the offering laid upon the altar. 
There is no voice, no people that does not bear witness to some God, some presence felt in the silence, some power seen in heaven. All human beings are divided into four general classes, but each one lives in only one part of himself, or rather, he minimizes all other portions and emphasizes this one above the rest. The lowest of these divisions is the physical nature, and those who dwell therein are of the earth, earthy. They live only for the gratification of their physical natures. Their idea of heaven is a place where there is food, feasting, and little or no work. They are the Brahmanic Sudras who, born in chains, are doomed to live and die in shackles of low organic quality. The very structure of the bones and flesh prohibits fineness and texture, either of body or soul. Their minds are only partly active. Their bodies resemble prisons more than dwelling places. They differ from the finer temperaments as the dray horse differs from the Arabian thoroughbred. Like the former, they live to labor plodding along to a mediocre destiny. They are the laborers who must in truth earn their bread by the sweat of their brows. Give them opulence and they cannot retain it. Give them luxuries and they do not appreciate them. They are the dark earthy ones who must ever bow before intelligence. They do not love God, for they cannot know him. They are like the hairy anthropoids, raising their hands to unknown elements. The second division is made up of the artisans, and those who labor both with mind and hand. They are the brown men of the Indian myth. They buy, sell, and exchange. To their basic dullness has been added a certain cunning and some intelligence. Having a mind, they control the mindless. They are the petty shopkeepers and those of a similar class who are gradually exchanging the labor of a hand for the labor of the head. Not having the mental organism with which to reason, they fill the places of worship where thinking is done for them. They are the ones who allow their clergy to decide all spiritual problems for them, feeling themselves incapable of assuming the onus of heavy thinking. As a result, their ideas of eternity are rather abstract, and their credulity is utilized as a commercial asset by certain types of minds who consider it legitimate to capitalize on the ignorance of others. The third class is made up of the scientists. With microscope, telescope, and other apparatus still more complex, they attack the boundary lines of the known and wage war upon the limitless chaos. Those who wage this war in the cause of science are mostly concrete thinkers who follow as far as their instruments will lead them and then must wait for instruments still more powerful. Most of these minds are atheistic or at least agnostic. That is, of course, unless they have two standards, one to last six days in the laboratory and the other to be assumed Sunday morning in church. The miracles of theology are incapable of chemical analysis and are consequently taken cum grano salis by the scientific world. Therefore, the controversy between science and theology is bequeathed as a legacy to have and to hold upon that helpless posterity who come into the world to inherit the debate. The fourth and highest group embraces philosophers, musicians, and artists, all living in an abstract mental world surrounded by dreams and visions wholly unrecognizable by the other types. They have reached beyond the world of academic education to the world of creative idealism, which is at its present the highest function of the human mind. 
This world is the dwelling place of genius, of invention, and of the things which lower mentalities can only accept but never analyze. Religiously, these minds are deistic. Most of them are monotheists, believers in one God. Many of them are mystics or occultists, and although possibly not yet sufficiently advanced to recognize their doctrines, yet believe to that finer type of mind capable of piercing the veil which divides the shadow from the substance. In all human nature there is a certain expression of primitive instinct, but the desire for food which expresses the hunger of the material nature, and the desire for freedom which expresses the hunger of the intellectual nature, is also found that appreciation for the unknown, that aspiration which bears witness to the slumbering germ of a spiritual nature which, somewhere in the constitution of all living things, lies dormant and apparently lifeless. As soon as man was capable of thought, his mind turned upon himself. He sought to find a solution to the mystery of his own existence, which his unfolding intelligence was revealing to him in greater fullness every day. What am I? Why am I here? What lies beyond the horizon line of futurity? These were the great problems which confronted the primitive man, and these are also the great problems which confront the men and women of today. Religions have gradually been evolved as man sought to explain himself. Once they were few and simple, now they are many and complicated. This in itself shows the ever-unfolding faculty range of the human mind. The primitive man could count only up to the number of his own fingers. Since then, however, the human mind has conceived mathematics, and by this science can now deal in infinite computations of numbers, with at least some degree of intelligence. The greatest proof of the evolution of the human mind is found in the development of man's handiwork. The hollowed log of the primitive savage has become the great steamship of today. This great development which has gradually been brought about through the ages is not the result of the miraculous transformation of natural substances, but the gradual growth of the human mind, which is molding all it contacts into ever more complicated forms as the result of its ever-increasing senses and functions. Religion is the outgrowth of many ages of spiritual hunger. When the soul of the primitive man, finding itself insufficient, turned in awe to the immensity of nature, in whose endless pageantry it saw a power far greater than itself. The savage turned to the winds and found in them something superior to himself. He trembled in fear at the voice of thunder, fell prostrate in terror as great storms swept through the primitive world and volcanic craters belched forth red-hot stones and ashes. He offered sacrifice to the gods of the air, that they should spare him. He cried from the tops of the mountains and offered incense to the stars. He could not find God anywhere, so offered sacrifice to him everywhere. He saw his crops burn for lack of water, his children sicken about him. His hopes were dashed to the ground by an unknown, unnamed thing which, though he could not understand, was the determining factor in every thought and action of his life. This was undoubtedly the origin of religion, as man knows it. We remember the words of Pope, Lo, the poor Indian, whose untortured mind sees God in clouds, or hears him in the wind. Man is small, nature is great, 
Man is finite. Nature is infinite. Man struggling against nature is like a tiny boat buffeted by the waves. In the endless grinding wheels of nature, ancient man recognized power. He realized that there was something greater than himself, a power that was supreme. He longed to exercise it, and through millions of years struggled, like Hiawatha and the Maze King, to extract from unknown power the secret of its greatness. Like Isis, he conjured Ra to tell his name and sought again and again to raise the veils of the world virgin. He found that some things which he did destroyed him, while others brought him happiness and peace. He sought to learn which was which and why, realizing that his very existence depended upon the wisdom of his choice. Finding at last that he could not master nature by force, he sought to master it through obedience. Religious codes are largely the outcome of primitive experiments, says the human mind. Struggling for survival, gradually learned the will of nature and molded itself into that will. Today we are privileged to look back upon history of the race and profit by the experience of the sages. Saints, sages, and saviors unnumbered have lived and died grappling with the problem of human destiny. The fruitage of their labors is preserved to us in the scriptures and philosophies of all nations. What are the so-called sacred books? Are they not merely the contributions to the knowledge of the world made by those who, devoting their lives to the problems of humanity and learning to solve them, have wandered alone yet unafraid in those causal worlds which man calls nature? Gradually man has built the body or institution he calls religion. It is a mental temple, its dome upheld by a number of columns, each of these columns one of the faiths of men. The East, the West, the North, and the South have contributed either to the strength or the beauty of that structure. The entire building, however, is a material thing. It is the offering of man to the unknown. As the spirit enters the human body when the embryo reaches a certain degree of unfoldment, so will the spirit of truth enter the religious body when that structure has adequately prepared itself for such a coming. The world knows many religions, but nature has but one truth. All so-called faiths and doctrines are contributing to the knowledge of that one truth. All are expressing one ideal through a multitude of tongues. There is a babel on the earth, but there is only one voice in the heavens. All faiths are seeking to answer one question. What is the purpose of existence? Each answers it differently. When all are gathered together in the diversities, truth is established, for truth is the sum of all these things. Reality is all things unto all men. The ancient wisdom is the invisible, spiritual side of religion which quickens the body of religion. It is the one spirit which speaks through a multitude of tongues. It is that presence which enters it when its temple has been built by the body of its workmen. It vivifies the body of faith making it alive and not merely a series of empty shells. Like the gods of India, it has many arms and many heads, but only one heart. In the very early period of human differentiation, man was incapable of self-government, but was ruled by those appointed by nature to preserve him and unfold him to the point when he would be capable of taking care of himself. We are told that when our solar system began its labors, 
spirits of wise beings from other solar systems came to us and taught us the ways of wisdom that we might have that birthright of knowledge which God gives to his creations. It was these minds which are said to have founded the mystery schools of the ancient wisdom. For this wisdom was the knowledge of the will of nature for her children. The greatest art in all the world is the art of being natural. For that which is natural shall survive. For ages, religion has been founded upon a false hypothesis. It has sought to fill the world with miracles and unnatural things. It has sought to dictate and dogmatize. For this reason, it is failing. Religion is a body, but today it is a soulless body. It has not built its tabernacle according to the law. It is not serving intelligently and honestly the needs of the human race but rather is involving itself and its members in endless dissensions of greed, doctrines, and codes, forgetting entirely the spirit of truth. As a result, one of the most important elements of human life is gradually removing itself from the world. And for lack of an honest, intelligent, fair-minded, and progressive religion, we have an age of extreme materialism when a god of man merely changes from a gilded figure of an unknown god to a gilded coin with distinctly practical uses. The ancient wisdom tells us that there is but one religion, and that its seed was planted in the souls of things with the beginning of the world. It became a mighty tree, with its roots in heaven and its branches on earth, like the sacred banyan of India. As all the branches depend upon one trunk, so all faiths and religions depend upon one source one light for all that they have been, are, or ever shall be. Some branches are large and strong, while others are small and weak. But through all of them courses one life. That life is light, and that light is the life of men. The ancient wisdom knows neither heathen, nor Christian, nor pagan. It recognizes only many branches on one tree each branch in itself incomplete, but each part of the tree of faith. The tree asks nothing of the branches, other than that they shall be true to the tree and bear true witness of the life coursing through the tree. The ancient wisdom is the life in the tree of faith. We do not see the life. We see only the leaves and branches which bear witness to the life. But in due season the miracle of the tree is accomplished. The life of the tree is glorified in the bud and in the flower. The life of the tree is consummated in the fruit of the tree. The glory of the life of that tree is in the new seed which bears full witness to the creative power of all that has gone before. This tree is indeed a tree of life. For without the higher and finer sentiments man does not live. He merely exists. If any branch of that tree does not bear fruit, the master tells us that it shall be cut off and cast into the fire. It is the duty of all living things to produce some truly constructive labor as recognition of the divine life which is within them. God is the most glorified when his children glorify his spirit within themselves. In the remote past, the gods walked with men, and while the instructors from the invisible planes of nature were still laboring with the infant humanity of this planet, they chose from among the sons of men the wisest and the truest. These they labored with, preparing them to carry on the work of the gods after the spiritual hierarchies themselves had withdrawn into the invisible worlds. 
With these specially ordained and illumined sons, they left the keys of their great wisdom, which was the knowledge of good and evil. They ordained these anointed and appointed ones to be priests or mediators between themselves, the gods, and that humanity which had not yet developed the eyes which permitted them to gaze into the face of truth and live. Overshadowed by the divine prerogative, these illumined ones founded what we know as the ancient mysteries. These were schools of religious truths, religion being used in the sense of implying divine wisdom. To these spiritual universities were admitted the most worthy and most capable of the sons of men. At first, these schools were publicly recognized. Great temples were built to house the priests and serve as chambers of initiation. The record of the mystical arcana was in the form of carvings, baked clay tablets, and papyrus rolls. Generation after generation was illumined by the wisdom secreted in these sacred repositories. Gradually, a separation took place among the schools of the mysteries. The zeal of the priests to spread their doctrines, in many cases, apparently exceeded their intelligence. As a result, many were allowed to enter the temples before they had really prepared themselves for the wisdom they were to receive. The result was that these untutored minds, slowly gaining positions of authority, became at last incapable of maintaining the institution because they were unable to contact the spiritual powers behind the material enterprise. So the mystery schools vanished. The spiritual hierarchy served through all generations by a limited number of true and devoted followers withdrew from the world, while the colossal material organizations, having no longer any contact with their divine source, wandered in circles, daily becoming more involved in the rituals and symbols which they had lost the power of interpreting. An interesting and concrete example of the deterioration of the mystery schools and their rituals is found in the children's Punch and Judy play. For hundreds of years, the frivolous of all Western nations have laughed at the strange antics of these little figures. The world has long forgotten that this play originated among the early Christian mystics, where Punch was Pontius Pilate and Judy was Judas Iscariot. The little club which Punch carries is a degeneration of the ancient scepters which were carried by Roman dignitaries in the Holy Land. It is also quite probable that the famous scene between Punch and the baby is taken from the early Christian story of the slaughter of the innocents. It is really remarkable how down through the ages, by word of mouth, by allegory and symbol, and by natural example, the truths revealed to the ancients have been perpetuated to our own day, and yet have ever been concealed from the eyes of the profane. It has been said that wisdom lies not in seeing things, but in seeing through things. For the occultist, at least, this is doubly true. During the Atlantean periods of which Plato dreamed, the work of gathering and arranging the ancient wisdom went on apace. For the people of Atlantis were the greatest exponents of concrete thought the world has ever known. The Atlanteans never fully understood the wisdom that was theirs. For even in those early times, the gods had withdrawn from the mass of humanity and spoke to man only through appointed priests and oracles. The method of communication used by the spiritual powers is faithfully set out by Josephus in his description of the Ark of the Covenant and the priests who served it. This Ark was an oracle, and the gods spoke to the high priest by means of the language of symbolism. 
from the Atlanteans with their ancient tabernacle mysteries, we have secured nearly all that we know concerning the ancient wisdom and its mysteries. According to the sacred book, they were the keepers of the spiritual records which had been given to them by their progenitors, the serpent kings who reigned over the earth. It was these serpent kings who founded the mystery schools, which later appeared as the Egyptian and Brahmin mysteries and other forms of ancient occultism. The serpent was their symbol, for they taught man the use of the creative energy which courses through nature and his own bodies as a serpentine line of force. They were the true sons of light, and from them have descended a long line of adepts and initiates, duly tried and proven according to the law. These have kept alight the divine truth through many generations of ignorance and thoughtlessness. The later Atlantean world crumbled because it wavered from the law. It forgot that nature was the ruler of all things, and in attempting to survive unnaturally it was destroyed. Before its disintegration, however, the ancient wisdom passed into the new Aryan world, where from the heart of the lofty Himalayas, its adepts and initiates began the process of building a new people to be the living tabernacles of the gods among men. Man has not always been a material being. Eternities ago, he was a spiritual creature of radiant and glorious powers. Gradually, he assumed the coats of skins, which we call bodies, and his radiance was darkened by the sheaths of clay. Little by little he lost touch with his fathers, the sons of light, and began to wander in darkness. At the time when the third eye closed in man, during the period of the ancient Lumerian world, the human race lost contact with its invisible teachers. Gradually, even the memory of them faded out until only myths and legends remained. Mythology is the authentic record of those periods of transition, when the diviner sparks were gradually assuming the bodies of mortality. But man was never left to wander alone in ignorance. When the ties connecting him to the unseen worlds were broken, certain methods were established whereby the will of the gods could be made known. To this end, a certain number of men and women were instructed how to bridge the chasm, which then separated the gods from men. The method of establishing this communication was the greatest of all secrets of ancient occultism. This secret has been preserved for the race. For at a later time, all human beings will be able to communicate directly with the gods once more. During the great interval of ages, this wisdom has been perpetuated in the mystery schools, and a few chosen disciples in each generation have been given the sacred privilege of knowing the gods. This wisdom and the power and knowledge they have gained, they in turn impart to a few chosen and beloved disciples. Thus, the work is carried on. The ability of the mystery schools to communicate with the invisible worlds is the basis of their power. For all the creative hierarchies dwell in the unseen worlds, and there the disciple must go in order to consult them. The reason for this is that the human race is the only one in our scheme of things that is equipped with both a physical and a mental body. The gods, so-called, have never descended into physical substance. Consequently, having no body composed of dense chemical elements, they are incapable of manifesting here. In order to communicate with them, man must, therefore, learn to function consciously in his own invisible bodies. When he is capable of doing this, he can communicate with the spiritual beings who dwell in similar superphysical substances. Thus, while religion deals only with fancies, theorems, and beliefs, 
The initiates of the ancient wisdom go straight to the fountainhead of wisdom, and learning the will of the gods, make that will the law of their lives. The initiate does not guess, wonder, or soliloquize his labors with facts, for he is one with the truths of nature. The secret path of spiritual illumination is the way which the planetary Logos has established that his children might learn to know of him and accomplish his ends. The Logos is surrounded by a hierarchy of superhuman beings and also by a group of great initiates, who may be called the fruitage of the human world period. These great initiates, with their divinely inspired minds, are established as mighty pillars in the house of their god. They are the supports of the temple of human progress. These great minds were called by the ancient Jewish mystics the cedars of Lebanon. These are the trees which Solomon is supposed to have cut from the forests of earth to use as the mainstays of his divine temple. From north, east, south, and west, the secret truths of these initiated minds have been gathered. The adepts and mystics of all nations have given to their disciples the fruitage of their investigations while functioning in the invisible worlds. The mystery schools, fulfilling the ancient law, are fashioned in the pattern of nature, and we know them today as the seven great schools of the mysteries. All these are branches of one tree which grows in the center of the garden of the Lord watered by the four rivers, the wisdom of the four worlds. As every ray of light breaks into seven colors when it strikes a prism, so this ancient truth, striking the prismatic body of the material world, appears in a septenary body. This body is called the seven-headed serpent, for although it speaks with seven mouths, it has but one brain, one life, one origin. The priests of the mysteries were symbolized as a serpent, sometimes called hydra. From this word, we have secured our common word hydrant. As the hydrant carries water, so through the hydra body of the initiate pass the waters of life. He is therefore a tube or channel, through which they are disseminated like water from the nozzle of a hydrant. These seven schools, each composed of twelve initiates and their disciples surrounding a thirteenth exalted brother, are the God-ordained perpetuators of the ancient wisdom, as it has come from the dawn of the world when the gods descended from the nebula of the sun and took up their dwelling place on the sacred island at the north polar cap. As this document is not intended for propaganda purposes, we shall not name any of these schools but they represent the seven planets and the seven great paths. They represent also the seven vital organs of the human body and the seven vials which pour out their contents upon the world. All disciples seeking to gain knowledge concerning the laws of nature must secure that wisdom through one of these seven channels appointed by the infinite for the furtherance of his peculiar work. Every one of these mystery schools is invisible and unknown. They can only be found after long searching and repeated disappointment. In recognition of the dignity of these schools and the sanctity of the wisdom which they represent, this treatise has been prepared to give in a simple way some of the marvelous truths for which they stand. Every hundred years the voice of the great school is heard, and into the world comes one to bear witness to the unseen. He speaks with the voice of wisdom, and he is overshadowed by the seven lights. Gradually, the mystery school, the seven branches considered as a unit, 
is leavening the entire loaf of human thought. Today, as never before, men are turning to search for their gods. Or we should say they are rather turning away in disgust from our age of materiality, which is slowly crushing the beauty and spirituality out of life. Our materiality is destroying the souls of men. It is breaking the heart of the world. It is stifling the finer side of every nature. And something within man is revolting against this unnatural oppression. Many who have never given it thought before are now wondering what the end of it all will be. How far the human race can involve itself without bringing the entire structure of modern ethics crashing down in ruins. Within the last 50 years, thousands have become spiritual pilgrims and taken up their search for truth, seeking amid the hills and valleys of the human soul for the answer to the riddle of destiny. They are seeking for those mystic masters of wisdom, known to legend, but of whom history bears no record. Throughout all this searching, there is a great uncertainty. But one or two facts stand out very clearly. First, the majority of people do not know what they are looking for. If they should meet truth, they would not recognize it. The masters they seek are about them every day. But like Sir Lonful, they journey into distant lands seeking for those things which are upon their own doorsteps. Secondly, they would not accept wisdom if they should find it. They would all be glad to have that power that the masters have, but few would labor unselfishly and untiringly for ages to secure that power and then consecrate it unreservedly to the good of humanity. Before passing on to our next subject, let us sum up a few points to be remembered concerning the great work and its workers in the world. 1. The instinct of reverence for the unknown is implanted in all human life. It seems that even many of the higher animals must have it. For as they sit at the feet of their beloved masters, their animal souls speak through upturned eyes filled with love and tenderness. The love of the dog for its master and the love of the disciple for his teacher are closely allied. The dog asks for nothing but kind words and will lay down its life for its master. Such is true devotion. From the savage upward, reverence and devotion to the gods form part of the moral code of all humanity. Many may deny it, but in the form of either faith, fear, or superstition, it persists. 2. The maker of the great plan which we call life, the being from which we have been differentiated, has given man certain potentialities. These, when awakened to dynamic powers, will give to each the faculties whereby he may know that plan. By learning it himself and applying his wisdom, he may then reach the position where he can assist others to harmonize their lives with the same law. 3. For the purpose of disseminating the wisdom wisely among all the nations of earth, the schools of the ancient mysteries have been established, not by the will of man, but by the gods themselves, laboring through channels chosen from the most highly evolved children of earth. For, having established these schools, the superior intelligences became the central and visible powers of these schools and are still in actual communication with the adepts and masters who are at the present time manipulate the destinies of these secret orders. 5. All growth spiritually must take place through one of the seven channels appointed by nature for that purpose. 
and at some stage in his spiritual growth, each disciple will enter the planetary path best fitted to evolve the qualities that lie dormant within himself. 6. These seven schools, together with their branches in all parts of the earth, constitute the Great White Lodge. This is the divine institution appointed to give the ancient wisdom to our planet. It is composed of all the initiates and adepts of the White Path and forms the invisible government of the earth. 7. The ancient wisdom contains the true and accurate knowledge of the plan whereby the gods, man, and the universe were established, are being maintained, and will later be dissolved into eternity. It is the knowledge of all things in their relation to God, nature, and themselves, and it is the only guide by which man can be shown the path he must follow if he were to liberate himself from the ignorance and darkness of materiality. 8. Anyone may walk that path who will accept and live up to the obligations which the ancient wisdom places upon all who would learn the mysteries of life and death. If they will live the life which it points out, they shall know not only the doctrine which it preaches, but also the great ones who have been chosen by their own virtues to teach their younger brethren the ancient wisdom. 